A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, my name is Sarah Collette, and I'm here with a Thoughtful Faith podcast, and I'm joined today by Nylan McBain. Recently, I came in contact with Nylan because she wrote a paper that was presented at the FAIR conference, um, To Do the Business of the Church, a Cooperative Paradigm for Examining Gendered per- Participation Within Church Organizational Structure. I read the paper and um, felt like it spoke to me, something in it touched me, and I felt like I really had to speak with Nylan and, and um, see if she would be willing to do this podcast. So she consented, and here we are today, and I'm I'm really happy to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm delighted to do this. Um, let's just start. I'm going to have you give um, your own personal narrative um, and Go ahead and start with a bio where you were born and, and your relationship to the church throughout your life. And then we'll just go from there. Okay. Um, it's funny to be put in this position because I, I'm usually the one doing the interviewing for the Mormon Women Project. I usually start with that exact same question. So, um, it's, it's funny to actually be answering that myself instead of asking it. Um, so I was born and raised in, in New York City, uh, to an opera singer mother and a lawyer father. And my father had joined the church sort of to marry my mother. Um, and so he quickly went inactive, unfortunately, but he was always very supportive of our involvement in the church. She was, she was, yes. Pioneer stock, active family raised in Southern California, um, in the fifties. So very, very active. And, uh, and her activity in the church sort of through that period where she was developing her career and marrying essentially a non-member was, is very intriguing to me. And I think as I get older has, has more and more repercussions in my life. But at the time I just saw her as purely a hundred percent active, devoted member of the church. And we just happened to live in the middle of Manhattan and, um, and the church it, with, for anybody who's, who's familiar with, with the new Manhattan temple, Oh, it was just two blocks away from the apartment where I grew up. And, uh, it was also my mother's workplace because she sang at the Metropolitan Opera. So my, my world was actually very small, uh, right there on the Upper West Side. And the Upper West Side wasn't what it is today. It was kind of a, um, the other side of the tracks at that time in the seventies and eighties and wasn't nearly as, as, um, gentrified as, and posh as, as it is today. But so it it provided a, a really wonderful community, you know. Even even today, people say that New York is the last bastion of village life, and it, it felt like that. You know, the dry cleaners two blocks away, and your preschools two blocks away, and mom's work was two blocks away, and the church was two blocks away. It was it was actually a, a pretty idyllic setup. And um, our ward uh, was 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 tight knit, um, somewhat transitory as I was growing up, but 
but it grew quickly. And by the time I went to college, of course, there was an entire stake in Manhattan. And you couldn't just go to the Lincoln Center building anymore to see every Mormon in New York. You know, now I think there are five buildings or something. I haven't even kept track. But um, at that time, it was uh, really the heart of the church in, in New York City, that building right there. And I went to a private girls' school for 12 years on the Upper East Side. So I guess that enlarged my my um, neighborhood a bit. But um, uh, 27 girls in my graduating class, still a rather small experience. And it was an excellent education. I uh, was very involved in music growing up. I studied the piano at Juilliard uh, at their pre-college program on Saturdays. I sang in the Metropolitan Opera Children's Chorus. I grew up backstage of the Metropolitan Opera watching my mom perform. And um, it was it, it was wonderful. I loved it. Um, we would go to California in the summers, which is kind of an important element of my upbringing because it was during the summers in Los Angeles where I was actually preparing for piano competitions and competing where I became most familiar with sort of a, a more typical Mormon culture and Mormon family life. My aunts and uncles and cousins all lived in Southern California. And when we would go in the summers, we would live with my aunt and my cousins and um, right there on the beach. And so it was a, it was a great balance and it really gave me an opportunity to gain a perspective on my faith and on my family life that I didn't have going to school with, you know, very wealthy socialite Wall Street uh, type. Was there a difference in the culture in your wards, like your New York ward and the York ward in California, or did you find that they were similar? Um, the the New York wards were... There, there, it was definitely different. There was a greater passion in the New York wards, for instance. And, and honestly, a lot of it had to do with my mother, who was a very prominent um, sort of force in those wards at that time. For instance, our road show, when I was, I think, just a freshman in high school, um, we had to, we had to film our road shows that year. I remember because, um, we had, we, we took an, a, a large area, our stake took in a large area and we had really culturally diverse groups, as you can imagine, coming in from Harlem and Yonkers and the Bronx and everything coming into our stake, our stake road shows. And so in order to provide some sort of equity, um, uh, among the, the shows, it, we were instructed to, to, uh, present videos instead of live productions. Well, my mom was put in charge that year and she arranged with the city of New York to have us film our roadshow on the Peking, which is the, the tall ship that's docked in South Street's seaport. So, <laughs> so we, we put on a skit about bad pirates gone good. And we went down to the Peking and right there in the middle of South Street seaport, we filmed our roadshow. So that was the kind of energy that was there. I had a, um, I had a, my seminary teacher was probably the most influential spiritual, uh, figure in my life because she had, um, she was a, a middle-aged single woman and had, was of Jewish lineage and had gone to Hebrew university as an undergraduate and studied Hebrew and knew it and, and actually was very involved at the New York Jewish congregations. And so she would take us to synagogue on high holy days and we, she actually took us to Israel um, in the summer between my 10th and 11th grades. And I had four people in my class and two of them were the bishop's daughters. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like she was taking a, you know, Sandy, Utah seminary class of 25 kids or something. So it was the four of us. And we went for two weeks to Israel with her on her 
her wow. self-guided itinerary. So on a side note, I was, um, in the young women's just a few years ago and requested to take my Laurel group to a Jewish synagogue and was denied. <laughs> I mean, I think that's just cultural, but I think that that is a, a difference yes. because I think that depending that on where you are, <laughs> that's either considered a value or discouraged. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, another question I had is you mentioned that you and your mom would go to California. Where was your dad? So my dad was in and out of the picture. When I was 12, my father actually moved to an apartment down the hall in our building in New York. And, and in, in Manhattan terms, that's a separation. <laughs> um, and my parents, it was very complicated for most of the rest of my um, time living at home. Uh, I, I essentially was the, the emissary between the two warring parties. And, um, they finally were divorced when I was 19, when I was a sophomore in college, but it was many years of trying to make it work. There was actually one time when I was about 14, where I was moved to the apartment down the hall and my parents lived in our apartment, one in each bedroom. And that didn't last very long. I got kind of lonely, but they tried. And, uh, my father, you know, he was, he was very influential in my life. He, he was extraordinarily intelligent, very well-educated, wonderful, uh, family, very sophisticated arts oriented family. He, he, uh, left me with his great taste, his love of music, his love of education and love of beautiful things. So I have a lot to thank him for. So what are, you mentioned your, um, seminary teacher. Can you articulate some of the more significant spiritual moments in your life? Um, whether they were doubts or affirmations or testimonies, what are some of those significant moments? My youth, uh, even, even through college, and I can get to that in a, in a bit, but my youth was one of those youths where I was just completely absorbed in my devotion to the gospel. And that was rewarded with some tremendously powerful experiences. One of the things I've struggled with as I've grown older is trying to separate those experiences from the context in which they happened, specifically the context of my mother and of um, leading church officials being involved and the sort of manufactured experience that some of them, uh, involved versus the very quiet personal witness of the Holy ghost. I I've experienced both, but some of my most memorable really hit you over the head sort of experiences were for instance, um, accompanying my mother as she sang, Oh, divine redeemer for president Hinckley. Okay. At the Jerusalem center. Right. Overlooking <laughs> Jerusalem. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's con- what I mean by context. Right. Like, and so I struggle now. And I think, you know, if I never had had the opportunity to meet President Hinckley, if I'd never had the opportunity to have a mother who as a single non-temple married mother of one with a career was lauded and celebrated and praised by the brethren, would I have had those same quiet stirrings of the spirit that gate would get, have given me the same rock of a testimony that I have today. 
Um, and I, and I do struggle with that. I mean, we, we talk about how it's not necessary for us to go walk in the Savior's footsteps in order to know him. And I do believe that, but it sure helps. <laughs> true. It sure helps. And, um, you know, I mean, when I was in college, uh, I went back to Israel because I had a college roommate. His father was overseeing an archeological dig there. And, um, and I took, I was on the dig during the week. And then in the, over on the weekends, I would go into Jerusalem. And I remember one time taking the bus back. I was at Tel Megiddo on this archeological dig and Megiddo, of course, um, a significant Jewish history site, but it also overlooks the Jezreel Valley, which is believed to be the site of Armageddon, Megiddo. And so I took the bus back and the bus let, let me off a, a mile or two away from the kibbutz where I was living. And so I was walking essentially through the Jezreel Valley on my way to Tel Megiddo with Nazareth off in the distance. And I just believed. I just believed. I just knew um, that this was sacred. And I, and I, I don't think I could say, you know, yes, I knew that the Battle of Armageddon was going to be fought here. Um, I, I don't even, you know, I can't even, it's not part of my testimony to even say whether that's literal or, or not. And, and I'm sure scholars have lots of insight into the look, that location and, and its meaning. But for me, it, it was, um, it was just an absolute sure knowledge that something about this place was sacred. And that I was a part of it and that I was beloved and that I was part of thousands of years of history that come together in a divine plan. And a lot of my testimony is based on that one fact that I am part of a huge extension of covenant makers reaching back to Abraham. And I feel, and and it's one reason why I love the temple too, because I, I think, you know, I don't care if they were actually making these same signs and tokens. I don't care if they were actually wearing this, these same clothes. What I care about is that something there has resonated through our entire human history. There's something going on here that links me with generations of believers for thousands of years. And, and, you know, if it's for us at this dispensation, it's these certain covenants and it's these certain signs and symbols. Okay. I'll accept that, you know? But for me, the gospel becomes quite simple and quite small when it's just about linking me with past believers and past covenant makers. And for me, that's extremely, extremely powerful. And although I do struggle with that idea of the grandiose contexts of my spiritual manifestations, I do want to also say that um, I had, a, you know, circumstances in my teenage years that were very typical for many um, teenage members of the church, which is that my parents were separated. And, you know, that can happen anywhere. For me, it was happening in the middle of New York City in a two-bedroom apartment, but it happens in, you know, every, you know, lots of suburban homes all over the country. So, and it was, the, the, that experience is having personal private witnesses in the quiet of my room that allowed me to know that I wasn't alone. You know, and, and that didn't involve President Hinckley. <laughs> it didn't involve the Jezreel Valley. But those, and so when I, when I, when I question, you know, the, the grandiose experiences, I always do actually come back to those formative years when I was a teenager because those were other times where I just believed. I just knew there were presences in my room that were not my own. And I just knew that. And I knew 
that the Lord was protecting me and loving me and and I could feel a tangible spirit in my room and in my home that I didn't have when I was visiting my dad and arguing with him and that I didn't have when my parents were arguing or I didn't have um when I was at school. It was it was in my home and it was in my room and um I I can't deny that. Do you feel as though you had the freedom in your in your own testimony and within the context of your relationship to the church to form um, your own idea of who God was through those experiences? Or was what, were you living the experiences that were taught to you as a reflection of who God was, you know, at church? What do you, do you feel like you kind of defined him through those experiences? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I really remember very little about church <laughs> as a youth. I remember, I remember things like parties. I remember there was the Kolob County Fair. <laughs> right. Um, I remember a square dance. I remember talent shows. I remember primary parties. I, I just, I have very few memories, um, of, of Sunday school and primary, uh, until I, until I got into seminary. So I think it was really, it was really, um, personal, a personal relationship that allowed me to craft my own, uh, concept of God through those, those early years. I, I always struggle when I talk about how important my parents' divorce was to my testimony, because I don't mean to paint my mother as somebody who was just, you know, uh, one, one side in a bitter divorce battle. Um, you know, it, it was, my father was an, an extremely difficult person to get along with. And, um, I, I, you know, as a child, I sided with her and I think she handled it, uh, as well as she could under the pressure. But I, I, so I always hesitate cause I'd never want to put her in anything but the absolute best light. But the truth was that their conflict was important for me, uh, privately and individually. That said, you know, a lot of my um, spiritual understanding did come from her and did come from her uh, confidence in her ability to represent the Lord through her singing. It was her confidence to, you know, keep persevering at Relief Society and primary callings, even though it was a source of contention with my dad. I remember big battles about wanting her to get off the phone so much because she was doing too much Relief Society work. Um, and so I, I, I do want to always credit her with being the primary, um, uh, influence in my understanding of what my relationship with God could be. Okay. Thank you. I, I work, I think we're going to fast forward a little bit and I'm just going to ask you what led you to start the Mormon Women Project. And I know that that probably is expansive in, in terms of, what led you to Utah and what led you, you know, but give us a little bit of history associated with that. And then to bring us to that point. Well, that, that actually uh, does work nicely with what we were talking about. Cause it takes us into co my college years. So I went to Yale for college. Um, and I had, I, I actually was recruited to be a hunter scholar at BYU and I was offered the hunter scholarship. It was the one year that they had the hunter scholarship. Uh, between the, I guess, Benson and Hinckley, right? Um, and I, I came home 
from the weekend of, of being, I say wine and dine, but I don't know what (laughs) brownies or something, right. Of where we, the weekend essentially where we were being recruited and we had wonderful, wonderful meetings with fantastic professors. And I just was so impressed with BYU and it definitely appealed to me as somebody who had never really had um, a substantial Mormon community of my own age around. Um, and I came home and I was already into Yale. And so I remember sitting on the couch with my mom. And I actually don't tell this story too often because I don't mean to to at all belittle BYU. It's it's a wonderful institution. And, and I, I was genuinely impressed with the experience that I had there over that weekend and with the professors I had there. But, uh, I remember sitting on my, on the couch with my mom and I said, mom, you know, if I went to BYU, I could be taught by professors who got their graduate degrees from Harvard and Yale and Princeton and MIT. And, and, and they were so fantastic and I could learn from them and I could be an English major there just the way I could be an English major at Yale and, um, and, and she looked at me and she said, Nylon, you don't have to be taught by a professor who went to one of those schools. You could go to one of those schools. And I just kind of looked at her and it was like this light bulb went off. And so I went to Yale. Yeah. And, and I think I tell that story because it was, it, it was a, a very different way of positioning, um, for her as a mother, it was a very different way to encourage her Mormon daughter. Right. I mean, it's so unusual. And I've learned that more and more as I got, as I've gotten older. And it just so happened that there was, you know, a wonderful young man, (laughs) um, in our small Yale ward. And, um, I got married two weeks after graduating from college. So in that way, you know, <laughs> you, you got the best of both worlds. Someone joke, right? exactly. <laughs> which of course doesn't happen all the time, and I'm very sensitive to that. But, um, but I was sent off to Yale with with that understanding, and also as a single mother, I I actually just wrote about this in a book called Mothers of Faith um, that was put out last Mother's Day. I, I talked about my mother's prayer the day that I left for college, and um, it it was it sort of epitomized to me the, the feeling that I had all through the time I was growing up that my mom didn't have to lay her hands on my head in order to send me off fortified with her blessings and with the blessings of the Lord. Um, her, the prayer that she said, uh, just before I, the morning I went off to college, leaving her, you know, alone as a, as a single, single older woman in our apartment. Um, you know, I, it was a huge sacrifice for her to send me even just to Connecticut, <laughs> Um, but it was a huge sacrifice for her. And, and I understood that I understood the magnitude that we were never going to, you know, be what we had been over those last few years as a mother and a daughter. But she, she sent me off with uh, the best blessing I could have asked for, you know, and it was just on the side of her bed. So, so those kind of experiences sort of sent me off to college. And then I had a wonderful Relief Society president there. I served under her first counselor and she was a professed feminist had, had taken the the women's studies courses at BYU. And I remember it was the first time I saw in her house, I saw a post-it that said, a woman belongs in the house, dot, 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 and in the Senate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, um, that, and she, she actually, um, couldn't have any more children and shared openly with us her experiences of having numerous miscarriages very intimately and, and openly. And I felt 
my experience there was a wonderful combination of embracing my uniquely feminine side, you know, we're talking about motherhood and infertility. So in such sacred terms, um, and having this woman who wanted motherhood so desperately and yet, you know, was also, um, an, a very powerful feminist presence in my life. Um, that said, we also struggled in the Yale ward with, with keeping girls active. Um, and you know, that's why I understand that it's not for everyone to send their daughter off to a school where there is not such a strong church presence. We struggled with getting girls to church, um, on Sunday mornings. You know, this is a, this was a school where, you know, we did party till 3 a.m. and we weren't drunk, but we still were tired right. <laughs> at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. And, uh, and that was really the first time that it, I kind of, it kind of dawned on me, wow, someone doesn't want to come to church. Why would you not want to come to church? And we tried so hard and it wasn't working. And we, I, it dawned on me that, that girls had come to Yale to disappear. They had come to Yale to just fade away from the church environment, uh, with their families no longer forcing them to go. And that, that was startling to me. I mean, I know it, it sounds like it came late in life, but that was really shocking to me that somebody wouldn't want to come to church and be a part of what we were doing there, um, in the midst of, you know, a, a, a larger student body that was not understanding of, of, of what our, our feelings were. At that time, did you feel as though, um, your reaction to those women was, um, compassionate or more judgmental? It was more judgmental. Definitely. Well, I would say just puzzled. Honestly, like I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know how to interact with them if they were, if they went inactive. Um, I was nervous to reach out to them. I thought a lot of me just thought, oh, well, you know, I need to respect that decision. But I also was in a position as, a member of the Relief Society presidency to reach out to them. And I wasn't quite sure how to do it. And, and that was actually compounded when I went to San Francisco and I served under another wonderful Relief Society president. And I, I mentioned this, uh, I've mentioned this in a couple of times where, um, she and her family had their names removed from the church, uh, like the week she was released from being Relief Society president. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, the whole ward sort of suffered from a traumatic, from this traumatic experience. Um, because we were, I, my husband and I were very close to the bishop as well, and we knew that there were tensions between them. But we adored both of them, and we thought they both were wonderful people. They, I think, they just didn't quite get along. Well, that's understating it, but um, uh, but I didn't know what to do for her. I remember going out to a couple of lunches and just pleading with her, um, but I had no, I had no real ammunition. You know, I had no real, I hadn't studied anything. I had no real knowledge. I just had this personal conviction that what she was doing was, was, was to her detriment, you know, that she was throwing something away, but I couldn't really, I couldn't really, um, see beyond, I couldn't see her beyond that. And, and so I was very uncomfortable and I, and I know that others in my ward did a much better job than I did in that circumstance. So with who you are today and your perspective today, you would have handled that situation differently? Completely differently. Okay. Can you articulate maybe one or two things you would have done differently? Well, I would, um, I would have emphasized to her that our friendship was not dependent on our coincidental, 
you know, geographical placement in the same ward, or that it was even completely dependent on our um, membership in the church. I mean, we, we did have a friendship that was outside of our, um, our gospel bond. And I'm, I, you know, I, I would have just gone back to that as a foundation and, and, and reassured her that we could find other common ground. And I think some other people have done that, as I said, better than I, but, and I think I've done that much better in the ensuing years with other, with other women. Um, but with that one, I just, well, maybe failed. that was your first big learning experience yeah, it was. in that way. Okay. So, um, the Mormon woman project, you yes, went from <laughs> New York to San Francisco. Yes. And then, and then we went to Boston. Um, and the, the, the way Boston influenced my, uh, desire to start the Mormon women project was simply that it actually gave me time and space to start thinking about some of these things because I stopped working. So in San Francisco, even through the birth of my second child, I was working. And, um, I started doing a little bit of writing during maternity leaves. I had been an English major in college. I'd done quite a bit of freelance writing. I'd been on the newspaper. I had a couple of things published just in my early years before children. But, um, it was during my maternity leaves that I really started writing personal essays. And then it was in Boston where we went for my husband's business school and where I was not working at all, where I actually got the time and space to start thinking about, um, all of this unusual upbringing and what it meant for me. So, uh, so I started writing personal essays during that time in Boston. And then when we went to move to New York, uh, I, I sort of came to the conclusion that I didn't want to read and write about myself anymore. I was interested in other women. And I came to the conclusion that part of who I was, was due to these other women in my life up until that point. A lot of the women that I had grown up with, a lot of the women my mom was friends with, a lot of the women like my mom, who I felt exemplified confidence, uh, trust in the Lord, very core foundational testimonies, and also the initiative to go out and do something about it and engage in the world. So I decided to reach out to some of those women. Well, I should, I should say, I mean, I remember the night that I decided that I was going to do this. Um, you know, I was, I was still at home. I just had my third child. My father had just passed away, uh, which actually was significant because it, it gave me a little bit of financial leeway. I, Cause I knew that, you know, I was going to, I wanted to pay somebody to help me with this. I, I didn't want to just start a blog. I wanted to pay for a nice logo design. I wanted to pay for, um, a WordPress template. And, you know, it was, it was small, but I think it just gave me the financial freedom that I, I needed, um, to know that I could do this. And, um, I remember the night and it was just so clear. I just couldn't sleep. And I was like, this is what it's going to be. And it was a very clear prompting that I needed to just wake up the next morning and start this. So I did, I actually, um, started with one of the one of my friends from my San Francisco ward who had, who had lived through that, um, traumatic experience with me and really understood. She had actually been one of the counselors under our Relief Society president and really understood my motivations for wanting to do this. She herself was a convert to the church and had a wonderful story. And so I just called her the next morning and her husband 
ended up being my web designer. And I called upon a, a woman in my Brooklyn ward who had been a designer for Martha Stewart and she made the logo. And I just, I just knew what I wanted it to be. And, and, um, and I, I launched about six months later with 18 interviews, all of which I'd done myself of mostly women that I knew. And, um, they ranged from about 25 up to mid sixties. And I actually in that time had networked into a couple of women that I didn't know as well. And I didn't really know what was going to happen when I launched it. I, I just, you know, turned the switch and I wrote an email to a hundred people and I just said, I'm doing this and I don't know how often I'm going to update it, but here it is. And within one week, I knew that I had done something really, really big. It, um, it skyrocketed, uh, in readership. I had people, um, I did have the foresight to put a nomination form and a volunteer form on the site originally. And the nominations and the volunteers just started flowing in. Even within that first week, I started getting, um, emails of, you know, which happily I've received so many of since then of just, you know, heartfelt gratitude and thanks, even with just those original 18, you know, thank you for giving us a place to tell stories of women who have careers, stories of women who are suffering from real life challenges that are not just glossed over suffering for, you know, women, women from other places. I actually launched with a couple of, um, interviews, uh, from women abroad and, I just knew that I had touched this nerve and I, I didn't know what to do. Honestly, I remember those first few months I was quite overwhelmed. Uh, I got a really great volunteer core base core group around me. And I remember calls about like, what do I do? And I thought immediately that I had to just go big. I thought, well, should we post every day? Should we do podcasts? Do I try to foray into video? Um, um, and you know, I, I, I started thinking really on, well, should, should we be making books out of this? And, and I, 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 should I be making money off of this? And, and I spent the first three months really kind of struggling with what, what had I done? Um, and what, what was the future? And I, I feel like as I was just directed to just keep doing what we were doing and I chose to put my energy into networking and finding really interesting women rather than blowing out the medium, the delivery mechanism of those interviews. I decided to just focus on the quality of those interviews. And each interview is extremely time consuming because um, not only do we do the interview like you and I are doing right now, but then we go and transcribe it and we edit it. So it, 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 it's a, it's a big process. And I, I am so grateful for the volunteer base that I've, um, that have worked with me over the past three years, because I know I do a lot of my own interviews still today and it's very time consuming. This has been how many years? So it'll be three years in January that you've, that yeah. you've been working on the Mormon I, Women. I launched project. it the second week of January in 2010. Okay. Yeah. And so, we just done our 150th interview. So now you've um, recently presented at the fair conference. What brought you to that point that, um, and for the listeners, I, at, at this point, I think you should give your website for the Mormon Women Project. Tell okay. us what it is. Yes, I'll put in my plug. And then also, um, how did you, because the, the focus of the paper for FAIR, and I would encourage everyone to read it, you can find it on the um, FAIR website, um, is how, how we as Mormon women can 
find, I guess, um, direction in the feelings that we have that we need equality and we need recognition and, and kind of um, unity more with the brethren. Um, but that's kind of different from the overall thrust of the Mormon Women Project, which really focuses on just the beauty and diversity of LDS women. So what what bridges that gap for you personally? Well, the... Well, first of all, I always laugh when actually somebody reads the title back to me as you did at the very beginning because <laughs> it sounds so academic and so pedantic and I don't even have a graduate degree. I'm not an academic. So I always laugh. And my, when I read it to my husband, he's like, he, he's commented on that. He's like, that's the lo- the most academic title I've ever heard, you know, and, and I'm not that way at all. But, um, that it was a very interesting journey, um, to that to, to presenting that paper. I, I was actually recommended to the fair, um, organizers by the church's public affairs department. Um, just to back up a little bit more after I had, had been doing the Mormon women project for a year, I actually was, uh, contacted by Bonneville communications, which is the agency that works with the church's missionary department on the I'm a Mormon campaign. And I was asked to, if I was interested in, in some, um, uh, paid professional work with them. And I was very interested, um, cause I had worked in Silicon Valley for seven years in brand marketing. So, um, through my position at Bonneville communications, I've worked with the public affairs committee. Um, I've worked with them specifically on some, some questions about women's issues. They have been, uh, over the past year or so with the spotlight of the campaign, they've been very, um, interested in how to represent women's issues better and I've talked with them about that. And so I was kind of on their radar. And so when they called and asked for a recommendation of a woman to speak at FAIR, um, Public Affairs recommended me. And uh, I was given about uh, – I was given quite a bit of time. I was given about four months. Of course, I didn't start thinking about the talk until about, you know, six weeks before. <laughs> um, and when I started thinking about it, I, I mean, my husband can tell you, it was very tumultuous for me. I didn't know what to talk about because – I, I felt like I needed to branch off into some larger message from everything that I've, I'd learned going through, you know, the, this last three years of listening to Mormon women. So I didn't want it just to be a regurgitation of the stories that I've already published. I wanted it to be about me and my experience, but I didn't know how to do that for uh, an apologist audience. And from the start, I was very aware of my audience. I've, I've been familiar with FAIR for quite some time. I've admired a lot of their work. I have family members that are, you know, um, very devoted to it. And, um, so I knew my audience and it's not an audience that I usually interact with, um, at work, which, you know, my coworkers are much more blogger and Ackle type people. And I, I, I follow the blogger and Ackle. I'm not particularly active on it, but I certainly know um, what the major themes are. And so I wanted to be very aware of my audience and I struggled with how am I going to talk about the fact that Mormon women need additional support without being critical. And that was the conundrum. And I, I went through, I went to the temple, I fasted, I prayed, I, I struggled with it. And I knew, I didn't know it was going to be nearly as big as it's ended up being, but I knew it was important for me to get this right. Um, if no, for no other reason than to, to honor the public affairs department and to thank them for recommending me, you know, and, um, and, and to, to show and to represent to fair that uh, a woman's voice would be a, a real highlight of their conference. 
the the defining moment came for me one day when I think I was pointed to three different articles on various sites on the Bloggernacle that talked about women and specifically women in the priesthood. And at one point during that day, I literally broke down and cried. I was so upset by the, um, the divergent viewpoints that were, it was ending up in, in rhetoric that I just didn't feel was uplifting. And, um, I, it came to me at that sort of that, it was just a lightning bolt moment that I, that I just realized one of the things that I needed to do in my talk was to establish the reality of the pain that some of our women do feel. And I thought that, that this was probably an audience that, you know, I couldn't just jump into solutions with this audience. I needed to actually convince them or, or make a case for, um, the pain and not just assume that they were aware of it or that they would even be sympathetic to it. So that was really the turning point for me. And, and then the other turning point was when I came to terms with the fact that I'm not an academic and I've, I've had to come to terms with the fact with this fact over the past couple of years, I'm not an academic. I'm a marketer. I'm a businesswoman. I, that is my strength. I, I love church history. I love theology. Um, but I'm just not, I don't think in those same ways as many of the great thinkers and theologians we have in the church today do. And the historians do, I bring something different to the table. I bring a conviction that marketing matters. And by that, I mean that the way we speak about things and the way we behave influences perception. You can have the same product on the shelf and the packaging matters. It matters to how people feel when they use it. It matters to whether or not they recommend it to their friends. It matters the confidence that they get if they, you know, have it in their shopping basket um, when they get to checkout. And, you know, of course that can be taken too far. I, and I, you know, I, of course, you just look at the magazines as you're standing in that checkout and you know it can be taken too far where what we put, where what we dress, you know, the way we dress and the products we buy can, can completely consume our identities. But I don't think that just because that's a perversion of that principle doesn't mean we should throw out the whole principle. The principle is that we can influence perception through our language and through our behavior. And so I started with those two premises. First of all, establish the pain. Second of all, talk about language and behavior and its power to change perception. Uh, the third thing that went into the talk, of course, was the experience that I'd had um, working with the public affairs team on, on one article and in particular uh, talking about Mormon women. And it had been a really... Uh, important experience for me because I felt like my response to the public affairs team when they asked for my feedback was, was something that I actually was something very new for me. I felt like it really came from a moment of inspiration. I hadn't actually thought that all through before I sat down at my computer that night and answered in an email to them. And I looked back at that email and I thought, I got to do something with this, especially after it wasn't used in the piece, which as I said in the talk, I understand why it wasn't used in the piece. Um, and I don't fault public affairs for that, but I thought, you know, I got to do something with these thoughts. These are really good thoughts. You know, <laughs> this is the closest I've come to being an academic. Um, 
And so I was just grateful for the opportunity to sort of pull that out of my archives and, and, and use that again. So that's kind of how it all came together. So as I'm listening to you, I, I have a couple questions. Did you yourself really comprehend the pain of feminist women um, up until that point? Or was that really kind of an awakening for you as well? Or did you have a really good grasp on it? No, I had a really good grasp on it. I followed this closely enough. And um, one of the things that actually gave me a really good grasp on it was that last year I participated in a, a roundtable podcast on Pathios.com. We called it the roundtable um, with with the leaders of some other uh, Mormon women's organizations. And we talked very openly about that. And, and, uh, I really appreciated that experience because it did give me additional perspectives, even though some of those women were my friends before I even started the podcast with them. The podcast gave us an opportunity to, to really be very open about our, our feelings and our struggles. And, um, I appreciated them sharing those struggles with me because it made me really aware. So you really felt like you were speaking for loved ones and Oh, absolutely. Okay. It was coming absolutely. from a very personal place. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and kind of get into the meat then of the paper. And we, we, we talk a little bit about the pain. You do address that in the paper at the very beginning. You mentioned the experience that you had, um, that you shared with us earlier about um, Relief Society president. And, um, and then you kind of talk a little bit about, um, the priesthood and how, uh, how our pain is associated with that, with that patriarchal system. Can you start by addressing, um, the paradigm that we exist in with a patriarchal church and then women, women needing to feel validated and needing to feel of worth. Yes. So as I've gotten older and, um, gone into the workplace and gone to both single sex schools and also a co-ed college, I am aware that in our day and age, there aren't a lot of doors that are closed to women, which is a marvelous, marvelous thing. My children it, you know, this glazed, puzzled look comes over my eight-year-old's face when I tell her that, you know, in ancient cultures that she's, you know, beginning to study in school, women were not allowed to get an education. Uh, women were not allowed to to do this and that. And she just stares at me like she can't comprehend that. And that, that I think, is, is a tremendous blessing of our age. You know, I even remember in third grade, watching, um, and I'm going to butcher her name. I was it was it the, the challenge, the challenger space shuttle, um, that had Krista McAuliffe. Was that her name? And I know, so as a Sally ride, I think was before her, but I just remember being in third grade. And of course we all remember the challenger, our people of our generation, because it did explode in front of us. But, but I remember the, one of the reasons we were watching it was because I was going to an all girls school in the middle of New York and there was a woman on board. And this was such a, a momentous thing. And, and I just look at my daughter and she's never going to have an experience like that. I mean, you know, maybe if a woman becomes president of the United States and, and she and I have talked about that. And even, you know, when Michelle Bachman was in the, in the primaries and was appearing on some, some magazine covers, my daughter would say she's running for president, you know? Um, so, so, you know, I, I think it's extremely important for us 
no matter where we fall philosophically in, in our observation of the gospel to recognize that we are not a hermetic church. We are not a church that, that limits our engagement with the outside world in practical everyday terms. And so that means that we're out in the workplace. That means we can take advantage of the, you know, incredible, uh, um, um, advances in technology that allow us to be connected from our homes with outside communities. And so what, of course, that means is that, um, the, the, there's this blurring of the domestic and the professional spheres, both for men and for women. Men are home telecommuting more often and women are engaged in both community volunteer and paid opportunities from their homes. And I, I think that this is, as I said, a blessing of our age. I think that this is something that is, is contributing to a, a tremendous sense of, of satisfaction and happiness within, um, women in particular, it brings with it its whole set of problems as well. And, you know, we're just starting to see in the media studies that talk about, you know, the influence of being attached to your smartphone all day long and the influence of, of, of Facebook and on our, on our uh, emotional and, and private and even, even emotional mental health. But, um, in general, I think that, that that's just opened these tremendous doors that have, have blurred the divisions between home and professional lives. That said, we need to acknowledge that at the church, in the church organization, there is not that same blurring going on. Um, there is a church sphere and there's a home sphere and there's a gender associated with each one of those. And there is a suspension of understanding that is required of our women to move in between a world where they can participate in paid work and community work on part-time or full-time levels, um, as their circumstances allow and an institutional church where their gender still dictates the way that they can interact with the governance of that organization. And I think the, the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that there is a, a, a gulf there for our women that doesn't necessarily exist for our men. And I'm, and I, and I word that carefully because I'm not saying that that's a bad thing or a good thing. You know, um, I think that, that, you know, as I, I say in the paper, I think that there is tremendous, um, doctrinal support for the idea of, our lay ministry being organized the way it is. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And a lot of people that come from other organizations, other religious organizations that don't have lay ministries are so attracted by our lay ministry. It is one of our strengths. It's, um, it's, it's an absolutely revolutionary concept that, um, that we should embrace and recognize as being truly unique in, in the religious community. Um, and I understand that with a lay ministry comes a need for, um, organization. You know, I, it, 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 you can see things descending into chaos very quickly in the lay organization. If there isn't some organ, if there isn't some understanding of how various parties cooperate with each other. Right. So there is, you're saying there is, um, the success 
of our church in terms of its um, ability to expand, its ability to go places is because, I mean, we owe that to a patriarchal um, system that works well. well and I see, I wouldn't say patriarchal system. I, I just call it a lay system. Okay. A lay okay. system where, um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I, to get into a, a technical, my, my technical understanding of the church organization, I see, um, I see it as an opportunity for ministry. The church organization, the church institution is an, is an opportunity for ministry. And I think in the early church where the numbers were much smaller and the needs were much more fundamental, that ministry was very natural because it was about healing. It was about feeding. It was about taking care of widows. It was about, um, um, education. It was about making sure that families survived, you know, and today I don't know that the needs of that ministry are quite so apparent. And so sometimes I think what happens is we default then into organizational ministry, which, um, I think gives us a sense of purpose and it gives us, um, the opportunity to make sure that the needs of the congregation are met, but sometimes it loses that what I believe the original spirit of that lay ministry was, which was to 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 really be Christ's hands in each other's lives. And we we do get to that through various programs, you know, visiting, teaching, home teaching. I know that 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 is, you know, at the core. That's what those programs intend to be. But, um, but I, I think that we've lost that sense that the church is, is a mechanism for ministry and that ministry is the ability and the opportunity to work in God's name. And that's so much bigger than who, who presides and who passes the sacrament and who does this ordinance. It's, it's something that we can all participate in. It's, it's genderless. It's just the opportunity to be a ministering angel, you know, to, to do God's work. And, and I think that that whole understanding of our personal callings and our personal ordinations, even to be ministers of Christ has been lost in this modern structure that instead dictates institutional, structural sort of behavioral behavior. So from my perspective, I grew up, um, with this really, really strong tradition in the church, pioneer stock. But, um, and I would say that my father and my mother both are, and have always been very involved vocally in our congregations, in my home, um, within their community. They, they have always spoke you know, they, they speak their mind. They let it be known what they feel and what they think. And that has shaped me. Um, but both of them were subject to quite, um, a few, I guess, 
um, influences, assumptions in the church about um, the negativity of a women's issue, women's issues and, and um, feminist issues coming from my mother even, which is so funny to me because I think my mother at the same time that she would say that the feminist movement was bad, she was a feminist. And I think that women in the church tend to be that way. So why is that? Why do we have um, kind of these these paradigms that we function in where we say and think and adopt certain attitudes, but like you are indicating, really we live um, collectively trying to move forward and trying to establish these ministries, um, homes based in, you know, compassion uh, that were, that were, there's these two things that tend to compete. Can you talk a little bit about that? It, I mean, that's, that's the great question. Why do we do this? Um, and, and if I can just actually spin the question a little bit, I would say that it's the question itself that, that is so valuable for us as a people right now. And I think we're getting closer and closer to being able to stare that question in the face and say, why do we do this? And I think that there are a couple of factors that go into our ability to ask that question. And one of course is the globalization of the church. You know, we're being confronted both institutionally and personally with, um, with these, this globalization movement that really calls into question a lot of our cultural practices and, and forces, forces the issues. Um, and I also think that we're being forced to ask ourselves individually and on family levels and, and collectively at a church, as a church, what is it that you have to believe? What is our, what is our doctrine? You know, um, how do you separate principle from, uh, from culture? doctrine from culture, principle from practice. I, I think that we haven't actually had to ask ourselves those questions for the past generations because, you know, even until sort of the, the early 20th century, we had a connective thread of our pioneer heritage and we had the connective thread of the persecution. You know, I was just, um, learning about Emmeline B. Wells the other day, um, from Carol Cornwall Madsen, who's writing a new biography of her. And she pointed out that, you know, I, well, which I hadn't realized that Emmeline died in 1920 or 21, I believe. And she had known the first four prophets of the church. That's less than a hundred years ago where someone was still alive who had known the first four prophets of the church. And, and up until just, I think, recent generations, we've had that, that core membership still existing that either knew some of the early prophets or we're just a couple of generations away from pioneer um, persecution. You know, um, even Elder and Sister Packer at the Brigham City Temple dedication talked about how close they were to pioneer ancestry um, growing up there in Brigham City. And, you know, as we get farther and farther away from that, I think we as a people are having to ask ourselves, what do we really have to believe in order to call ourselves you know, um, members of, of this church. And I think that's partly what, um, the, 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 um, Mormon stories movement of the past 10 years has been asking. Um, I think it's what people ask on the blogger and I think it's what people ask in the privacy of their families. When children start questioning, what do we really have to believe? And, um, this question was actually asked to me recently. How, how do I personally 
separate doctrine from culture. And I stumbled over my response and I, I wish that I had gone back and had a chance to, to give another answer. And so I've thought about it a lot recently. And for me, I think the core of the gospel is actually very small. I think it's actually those things that the Holy Ghost bears witness of. They are, they are the, the fall, the resurrection and the atonement and the restoration. And obviously each one of those things is mammoth in itself, right? And so you, you can say, you know, where do you draw the line in terms of each one of those? But, um, but, uh, I think, I think that's what we're, I think that's what we're coming up against as a people right now. What do you have to believe? And, and, and what can the Holy Ghost bear witness of consistently and, um, completely in each one of our lives? And, and so I think that that's going to result in both a strengthening of our individual testimonies but it's also going to result in inconsistency among our leaders. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafraser.com. Bye, Mom.